This is Stephanie Silverman at ESCA. Good afternoon, everyone. We really appreciate everyone dialing in. Um, I wish we could tell you that this is going to be the definitive conversation about what's happening politically and everything will begin and end here, but everything is going to be guaranteed to change over the next few weeks. Lots of things in flux. So we're going to do our very best to tell you what's going on since tax reform has gotten much, much more active, um, at least uh, in inside the Beltway terms. Um, we don't know, but here's the, the punchline for those of you who'd like to be on and off this call um, in five minutes or less. The punchline is we have no idea whether we're going to see a tax bill by the end of this year, um, but uh, Noel and Matt and I and the team are going to try and walk you through where we are and what that means for ESOPs um, and uh, what some of the interesting color commentary looks like from, from where we sit. So let's start with um, our first slide. Uh, and I think, Matt, is this deck going to be available for those who would like a copy the of it? The deck will be available for those people that want a copy, and a recording of this webinar will be sent around to uh, folks that uh, attended this, and so you can share it with your uh, employee owners and colleagues. Great. Um, so uh, some of you may have noticed that Washington has tried and failed twice to pass a health care reform bill. Um, the politics inside the Republican Party have been particularly challenging. Um, we can have sidebars all day long about that topic, um, but the, um, the truth of the matter is that the Republican Party is divided really into three different parts. The establishment part of the Republican Party, um, the more moderates, um, there are fewer of them in the Senate than in the House, of course, um, but they're still important swing votes. And then um, the uh, more staunch, uh, part of the Republican Party the, at the fringe, I would say, or at the far right part of the spectrum, um, which are the Freedom Caucus in the House and the unpredictables in the Senate people in the Senate like Ted Cruz, Mike Lee, um, and uh, even Rand Paul. Uh, those folks make up one party, but the party is not acting as a monolith. And so what we continue to see is um, dysfunction when it gets time to big for big votes. Um, and the party itself is having challenges. I think that puts a premium for Republicans on getting something done on tax policy. Um, but it, it is very, very difficult in the current political environment to do something that is sweeping. So what we're going to talk about um, for, the, for the next little bit is what could actually get done in tax policy and when. Um, you know, just as a side note, we see a lot of traditional funders of the Republican Party parties um, stepping aside, uh, a division within the Republican Party uh, funding different subsets of the party, um, the bannonization of, of candidates um, for uh, who are um, primarying uh, Republican establishment members, especially in the Senate, um, is further dividing the party. And um, it's creating, I think, a lot more pressure on party leadership in Washington to be able to just check something off their to-do list and get something done. And I think for that reason, we'll probably see something happen on tax reform, but not urgently. Um, one of the things that's been interesting to me is that um, the only way, in spite of the fact that Republicans control, control the White House, the House, and the Senate, technically, the only way that anything significant has gotten done in Washington um, this Congress, um, and, I, and by significant I mean, you know, big policy change, has been when um, the President has reached out to Democratic leaders and um, made some sort of a compromise. Um, whether that compromise has become the subject 
of um, further disagreement within the Republican Party, uh, whether people think that the compromise was good, bad, or indifferent, it bore fruit. And for the president, who really cares about um, winning um, and getting things done, notches on the on the belt um, a great deal, um, he's learned that he can move policy by reaching out to Democrats. And I think that makes Democrats not fully um, on the bench right now. I think that Democrats are going to be interesting and, um, and appealing to Trump if it looks like the Republican Party itself is going to not be able to get something done on its own. Um, keep in mind that, um, that there are elections in uh, November of 2018. We're in October of 2017, which means that we are about nine months into this election cycle. And there are people who are dropping out of key races already because they're so frustrated about how hard it is to get things done. Um, uh, it's, I don't want to get too far down the field on the issue of gerrymandering, um, but I, I will say this, that um, for the Republican Party, the math has seemed very much in their favor in the Senate. Um, 25 of 33 Senate races are Democrats defending seats. Um, and so notionally, the Republicans should have a big advantage, but um, there are a lot of Republicans who are stepping out. We've seen Senator Corker and just yesterday Senator Flake announce that they just don't want to play anymore. It's too difficult to get things done and the party's not working cohesively. That ratchets up pressure um, on leadership to deliver some sort of a, a victory on a, a big issue like tax reform. Um, and uh, if they don't, I think they're going to see, you know, really negative outcomes for the party in the polls, more so than anybody would have expected, you know, by virtue of just the math. Um, one of the challenges for Republicans in general is that there is an, an awful lot to get done in this Congress and not very many legislative, legislative days to do it. Um, we have the government that runs out of money on that government funding deal. The government was funded through a continuing resolution that expires December 8th. Um, and so members of Congress are going to have to keep the government running. Um, it, it always looks bad for the party in power when the government shuts down, no matter who the party in power is. And then we have some other miscellaneous um, pieces of legislation that need to get dealt with that will take up time. There must pass pieces of legislation. Um, and then, of course, the debt ceiling, which we um, recognize is uh, probably not going to have to get done by the end of the calendar year, but is going to take up a lot of rhetoric. So a lot of pressure to get tax reform done, but a lot of other competing uh, priorities. So what do we know about tax reform? Well, I mean, one of the things that we know is that in the last week or so, um, the president and congressional leadership, especially in the House, has, have been very vocal about trying to move the process forward faster. Um, and let me, let me let Noel speak to what we know about the, the timing of tax reform and maybe some of the key elements that have been on the table. Sure. Well, the Senate passed its budget resolution last week, which allows them to pass tax reform with just Republican votes. They just need a majority of 50 votes. Um, the House has to pass a similar budget resolution so that they can move forward. So the plan in the House right now is to take up the Senate budget resolution tomorrow. If they can get that done, it's full steam ahead on introducing a tax bill. Um, there are a few things holding up the budget resolution. 
A lot of the real conservative members aren't thrilled with the Senate budget resolution, which is much more generous on spending. It's not going to do entitlement reform, doesn't pay for the tax cuts as much, but also um, members of Congress from high-tax states like New York, New Jersey, California are very, very concerned about a proposal to eliminate the state and local tax deduction. And they may leverage their concerns there to try to work out an agreement that they will not vote for the budget unless they have a commitment that the state and local tax deduction is not going to be eliminated, that it's just modified in some way. So stay tuned if the House passes the Senate budget resolution. They apparently are going to move quickly. House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady has said he will be ready to introduce a tax bill next week. So we could see something on November 1st. Um, huge questions as to what we will see in that. It was at the end of September where they released, where congressional Republicans in the White House released their blueprint. So it was another, you know, short document that included three tax brackets at the individual rate, 12%, 25%, and 35%. It would eliminate the estate tax. It would provide a C-corp rate of 20% and a 25% rate for some pass-throughs. But either they have not worked out the details or they are not willing to even share the details within the House Republican Conference. I mean, just earlier today, Chairman Brady publicly said, oh, well, we haven't exactly worked out which income levels would get those rates, which pay force we're using. So. We are a week out, and there are no details on are they going to change 401ks? Are they going to, uh, what are they going to do with the estate tax? We just don't know yet. So we will all be talking to members and waiting until something comes out, possibly next week. And they really do plan to move fast in the House. They could introduce the bill next week. The following week, they could be having their House Ways and Means Committee markup where they consider and vote, make changes to the bill, vote on the bill they get it out of committee, then they can be on the House floor by the following week. So we're talking House passing a bill before Thanksgiving so that they can go home and to their constituents and say, we passed tax reform. Over on the Senate side, they could just be a week behind. I mean, we think that's really, really optimistic given we haven't seen much from the Senate Finance Committee this year. And they will probably be reluctant just to copy what the House has done just to retain their authority over coming up with their own package, but while it's very, very ambitious, there is certainly a chance that both the House and the Senate could pass their own tax plans before Thanksgiving, and then those would, of course, would have to be reconciled into one plan in a conference committee before anything gets to the President. So at a high level, I think there are a few things to point out here about the knowns. Um, one is, as Noelle is suggesting, that while a lot of the details aren't clear about how pass-throughs would be taxed. Pass-throughs themselves are being, um, you know, dissected and put on the table in a very big way. We've talked at ASCA's table for a long, long time about how, I see it, um, about how um, important it is that we pay attention when pass-through corporations are being, um, you know, rescripted in any way, shape, or form because of the nature of the SESOP statute and the challenges we would face if the S corporation structure were, were reorganized in any way. So the fact that past corporate, past through corporations are on the table um, and, and being taken apart and folks are trying to figure out how to deal with pass through corporations is really, really important. Um, to be clear, I know that some of you have questions about how pass through rate 
um, uh, changes would affect um, S-corporations in general? And the answer is that there is no conversation right now about um, creating a new tax on S-corporations themselves, that these would continue to be taxes as we currently understand it on the S-corporation shareholders. And the reason that that's the case is because there have, there's been a very active dialogue about trying to create guardrails um, around these new pass-through taxes to make sure that they don't um, get misused by individuals and there's recognition that the pass-through rate um, on income in the pass-through corporation will be paid by the individuals who own them. So for the time being, we understand that that rate is on individuals, not on the entity. And I know that that's a big concern because if we move to an entity level tax for an S corporation, that creates new questions for S corporation ESOPs. I think um, we've been very, very happy to see that there, ha there haven't been any direct um, uh, bullseyes placed on ESOPs backs. But again, um, that doesn't mean that we, you know, that we're, we're through the woods yet. So what's not known? Um, can Congress pass their budget so they can use reconciliation? We think they will. Um, the House is acting on that now. The Senate passed a budget, um, as Noelle alluded, that really reflects a lot of the priorities of the House. So we think that they'll get through the budget discussion that they will be able to use reconciliation um, to, uh, to do some sort of a tax cut. I will say this about reconciliation. I don't even, I, I don't know how um, relevant the reconciliation process will be if Republicans themselves fall off the bandwagon in the tax policymaking process. There is a very good chance that policymakers will have to reach across the aisle and bring Democrats into the conversation. And there are at least a handful of Senate Democrats um, who have been uh, actively collaborating with the President. Um, Democrats like Joe Donnelly in Indiana, Heidi Heitkamp in, in North Dakota, um, Joe Manchin to a lesser extent in West Virginia, um, all of whom are kind of leaving their options open for where they go on, on a tax bill. Um, so it may be a bipartisan tax bill regardless of whether they, ha they use reconciliation. The cost of the package is a huge issue. Um, and the reason that it's a huge issue is that um, there are real ideological disparities within the Republican Party about whether or not passing a tax rate cut, which is much more likely in my view, a rate cut or a series of rate cuts with some odds and ends at the perimeter to, to pay for it, um, rather than a sweeping change in the way that we tax. Um, how much we spend on a net basis to lower tax rates is a big issue. There are Republicans like Bob Corker who have said, no way, no how should that package create a net new cost um, to the country, um, add to the deficit. Um, there is the rule that people have been talking about for a long time of dynamic scoring, which means that you can look at an economic measure and think about how it would affect the, the economy dynamically, whether it would create more jobs, whether those new jobs would yield um, additional payroll taxes, and whether in a dynamic sense it would, um, it would create either net new revenues or be a push. Um, they can use dynamic scoring, but there is going to be an ideological battle within the Republican Party still, um, in the House as well, about how about whether or not folks will agree to let a tax cut be large enough so that um, even in the short or medium term, it, it creates new, um, uh, new obligations in terms of the federal deficit. Why is that important? Because the more it's going to cost and the more pushback um, that leaders are going to get from their own party, and never mind Democrats who, broadly speaking, don't want to see rates go down for wealthy 
companies or for wealthy individuals, and they don't want to, Democrats have said we don't want to see any net new additions to the deficit either. Um, most Democrats have, have said that. Um, that drives how much pay-fors are needed, and, and ESCA has always been fixated on where are people going to get the money to offset the cost of the tax cuts. So we don't know is the answer to the question. Are ESOPs on the table? Not per se. Um, are S-corporation changes on the table? They are. Um, are there changes on the table, Noel spoke to this, um, to retirement savings plans? And would those impact us directly and indirectly? They could be. Um, I think we still have a lot uh, of information to gather. We're going to be pushing out a lot more intelligence over the next couple of weeks. Um, what is the president going to do about all of this? You know, he's tried um, already to make pronouncements about what will or will not be included in the tax package. Some of the more, um, uh, you know, some of the braver members of the Republican Party who are willing to take on the president, which is a very difficult thing to do right now politically, have encouraged him to sit back and be a little bit more patient and let Congress do its job. It's not the president's temperament to sit back and let other people drive. Um, and so we don't know whether the president will change the direction of the, um, of the package one way or the other in the next few weeks. Um, and then there's a question that a lot of us have been um, thinking about here in Washington, which is if they get through a tax rate cut, um, might there be some sort of a separate bill afterwards um, that deals with uh, retirement savings, 401ks, um, you know, Roth plans, and would that, you know, create a streamlining process for save at work plans, and would that then be something that ESCA needs to jump into? Anything is possible. It's still very much out there and on the table. This I think I spoke to before. These are really just how the House and Senate factions break up from, for your um, mathematical benefit. You can see that reliable Republicans, um, the kind of mainstream um, in the Senate are 44. You need 50 votes or you know, 50 votes to enact something with reconciliation because the vice president would be your 51st. You need 60 votes to enact something outside of a reconciliation process. And you can see that in neither the House nor the Senate do Republicans who are in the mainstream have enough numbers to get things done. So you got to reach somewhere um, to, to craft compromise. The interesting thing for the House side on the left is that um, the, the mainstream establishment Republicans at 159 members um, cannot get to a majority with either the Freedom Caucus or the House Tuesday group, which are considered the moderates. And so in order to get to a majority, you have to pull from both the far left side of the Republican Party and the far right side of the Republican Party, which is a lot of why the party is having such a difficult time getting legislation enacted. Um, I would say also that with, with elections coming up, with a lot of interesting dynamics in, um, uh, you know, across the country, people very angry with Washington for not being able to get work done, um, that the Republicans who return to Congress um, in both the House and the Senate will probably be fewer of the Main Street or reliable Republicans and more people who are at the fringes of the, uh, of the party itself. And that's going to make driving that train, right, and, and pulling the party um, together on any big policy issues really, really challenging. So the worst jobs in Washington right now seem to be Paul Ryan's and Mitch McConnell's. I think that, you know, an interesting footnote here, um, the person with the lowest popularity rating in the country right now is Mitch McConnell with a whopping 9% popularity rating. Um, so if you're anybody in any job, um, you're probably better loved than Mitch McConnell. So that should make everybody feel good today.
um, more about the faction building around key themes. This is just to give you a sense of where these mini coalitions are forming. Again, the Republican Party, not a monolith. Um, you're seeing people kind of pick different subsets of high-level issues and push them. So in the House, um, you've got a group of folks principally from the coasts, right, the um, California and New York members and other states where the state income taxes are particularly high who are fighting tooth and nail to preserve that state and local tax deduction. Why? Because um, it would hit their constituents hard, and that is still very much on the table as a possible offset for tax rate cuts. Um, you see, um, you know, Brady and Ryan, they're really spearheading the idea of permanent reform. One really important note here, a reconciliation package only lasts for 10 years. So at the end of a 10-year period, all of the policy changes that are, that are achieved through a reconciliation package would expire unless they're automatically extended. That's created a, a sub-industry in Washington of people who lobby for what we call extenders to extend expiring tax provisions. May we never be in the extender lobbying business because it's, um, it's kind of the same thing year in and year out. Um, so Ryan and Brady would like to see permanent reform because it's good for business and it's good for the business of Congress. And then on the Senate, um, Corker and others um, are, are screaming about making sure that, as I said, um, tax uh, policy changes don't hit the deficit. Um, Rand Paul has said anything that looks like a tax hike is a bad thing, I'm going to vote against it. And then there's a growing chorus of people who are, who are speaking up and talking about the importance of prioritizing the middle class, which is a nice place for the ESCA um, narrative to fit in, but it hasn't specifically embraced ESOPs. Um, some of you, uh, well, you know, uh, I would say that for the most part, um, those who have been supportive of ESCA's legislation tend to fall in the mainstream just because numerically that's where most members tend to fall. But we definitely have members who are um, further down the, um, the political spectrum. And the, um, the moderates in the mainstream tend to be where most of ESCA's uh, uh, allies are in the Senate. Um, and that's just because uh, in the Senate, I think the further down the spectrum you go with Republicans, the less you have support for tax provisions that drive certain social behaviors, if that makes sense. Um, so scenarios for tax reform, Noel, do you want to take this one? Sure. These are three scenarios that we could be looking at. We're pretty sure they're not doing sweeping tax reform, which we would consider, you know, if you're going to do sweeping tax reform, that's possibly changing from an income tax system to some sort of flat tax or consumption tax. That's never even really been on the table. I think leadership would argue that they're doing sweeping tax reform because it's been years since they've done this much and really radically changed the brackets and lowered the corporate tax rate, but we're really looking at what we would describe as a mini-deal. I mean, their focus all along really has been on making U.S. companies more competitive to bolster our economic strength. So, I mean, that's what they're looking at is a lower corporate tax rate, lower individual rates, and selling that as middle-class tax relief so that everyone will be lifted up with these tax cuts. Um, nothing very well could happen. I mean, we've seen things are getting blown up every other day for various reasons that have nothing to do with Congress, nothing to do with tax policy. So they could do a lot of work and fail to pass a bill in the House, fail to pass a bill in the Senate, just because other things get in the way. Um, that's not to say that if those things happen that Congress doesn't keep trying, given that they have to do this. I think the Republicans feel 
a real sense of commitment, which has lessened their commitment to a balanced budget and not increasing the deficit through tax cuts when the number one priority really becomes just get it done. So I think I've touched on where we think we have risks, but to be clear, um, a few things have cropped up that they're noting. First of all, there was a big New York Times article recently that restated for members of Congress what some of the key tax expenditures were um, that could raise a lot of revenue for um, to, to be used as an offset for any kind of a tax reform bill. Um, one of the items on that list was the what they call special benefits for ESOPs. Um, to be clear, that list is a um, technical list that's been out there for a long time. It's not new that there's a list of tax expenditures. The government keeps a list of every um, tax measure that was created by Congress to um, have a specific intended social or economic outcome and what the foregone revenues are um, by the um, estimates of the Joint Committee on Taxation. Um, two notes here. One, we haven't seen ESOPs pop up in the mainstream press as a potential pay-for in a very long time. Um, that's, I think, due to a very active advocacy effort by the ESOP community, ESCA and others. Um, and two, um, according to that article at least, the cost of the ESOP tax expenditure, meaning how much money the government would get back in real terms um, by getting rid of the ESOP tax benefits, all of them, not just the UBIT exemption, but all of them, is now estimated um, to be $23 billion over 10 years, or $2.3 billion a year um, to, uh, that the government is forsaking. Um, so let me stop here for a moment, because I know in the ESOP community a few things happen. One is sometimes people run around to policymakers and say, we know we cost $23 billion, but don't touch us. I'm asking you to please not say that. It's not a really good idea. It doesn't help anything. Um, it's not that we're hiding the number. It's not hidden. It's just that doesn't that number doesn't really, there, there's a lot of lack of clarity around that number. We don't know what portion of that number is estimated to be the SESOP portion. We can assume um, that it's a large portion of that number, but there's no benefit in touting it. And two, um, I know that there's a subset of our members um, who, who will come back and say, but that doesn't take into account how much money the government gets back over time, the dynamic benefit to the government of having people work for ESOPs and having them save more in their ESOP accounts and then paying ordinary income taxes at the end when they get their money out. Let me remind you all that ESCA has looked at those numbers and the very serious reality is that there are IRA rollovers now of ESOP stock and that, that pokes a very big hole in the math of that argument so we're not pushing that narrative because it doesn't help us either. Um, we can talk um, ad nauseum about the extraordinary benefits to community, to the national economy, to companies, to jobs, to you all, to your employees of the SESOP, but we're not going to argue with that $23 billion number. We're not going to win that fight. Um, and it, it reminds us that we have to do a lot more educating of a lot more members. Um, so, you know, what other risks are out there? I think this conversation about pass-through treatment is a risky one because anytime pass-throughs are on the cutting room floor, we have to worry about how they put them back together again. Um, one of the themes that started to emerge um, uh, in the last uh, few days has been an effort to try and differentiate um, pass-throughs in the services industry from pass-throughs in other uh, more 
quote-unquote traditional industries. That's not a good conversation to be had at all. We don't want any conversations out there about what a good pass-through looks like and what a bad pass-through looks like because it could inadvertently sweep up um, ESOPs in it. And then, um, you know, should we integrate all forms of pass-throughs, as um, Senate Finance Committee Chairman Hatch has talked about on occasion, into a single kind of a pass-through, that would be a huge problem. Retirement savings, we definitely focus on retirement savings measures. Um, President Trump was in the news um, this week saying there won't be any limits on your 401ks. Um, you know, whether or not that actually bears out the notion of limiting how much can be saved in a, a qualified retirement savings plan um, is also a conversation um, that we want to be mindful of. And then, of course, um, budget gimmicks that are achieved through um, changing the way retirement plans are treated in the tax code, moving the tax benefit um, earlier or later um, could also make ESOPs look different from other qualified retirement savings plans and in that sense probably also don't benefit us. So we have a lot of things that we're watching in this conversation, even if, as Noelle says, it's probably going to be a narrower package at the end of the day. There's a lot of moving pieces right now. Timeline. I'm going to let Noelle take this one. There's not much time left before the end of the year, and they do have a lot to do. As Stephanie mentioned at the beginning of the discussion, we've got to keep the government open in December, might be looking at the debt limit. So in addition to a major tax package, Congress will be busy. Again, they're highly, highly motivated to get moving and to act. So. Um, the timeline could be as fast as I mentioned earlier with seeing a bill next week and then action in the committee the following week. They really could move it along, but they've got to hustle. Um, House Speaker Paul Ryan has already said, you know, we're going to get this done if members have to stay in Washington through Christmas time. Um, Senator McConnell has heard from some of his fellow senators that we should be just around 24-7 so that we can get everything done. I don't think they'll go that far, but they're actually going to start working on Fridays to try to get this done. So um, again, they plan to be here as much as they can so that they do have some, I mean, in their ideal world, they're going to have the president sign this tax package into law by Christmas time, um, again, they're still going to have to reach an agreement between what could be very different bills coming out of the House and out of the Senate. So we would not be surprised at all, and ESCA members should be prepared that we will still be talking about this when we see you in Florida at the Leadership Summit as they try to come to some conclusions in wrapping up a final tax package next year. I think that a first quarter um, agenda is very, very likely as we sit right now because of all of these issues. So our Florida meeting is going to be particularly timely um, and hopefully we'll be able to, you know, take a very um, aggressive look at the last tranche of it to make sure that we're well protected. But uh, I would say that February is, is a whole lot more likely than December, wouldn't you say, Noel? Absolutely. Okay. So, um, you know, ESCA is, as you all know, very much in the middle of these conversations. We have um, staff discussions with um, the Hill and um, with key contacts and third party groups and elsewhere daily. Um, we know full well that we have support for SESOPs uh, at the leadership of the House and Senate tax policy making um, committees and our bill, which is not doesn't defend S-Corps directly, but it effectively defends us by having more members um, sign on to something that calls for the creation of more SESOPs. 
um, has been gaining more and more traction. I think you saw our members update um, just this week talking about how many co-sponsors we have. We've been uh, we've seen lightning fast movement in the House and the Senate, which has been great. Um, and uh, at least half of the the Finance and Ways and Means Committee members um, are now. Um, on the bill, uh, or at least in the Finance Committee, about a third of the Ways and Means Committee are on the bill right now. I'd say it's been a little bit harder getting House Ways and Means Republicans on our bill, just so you all know, in case you're looking at our co-sponsor list and wondering why some of our good friends that have been on the bill before, they really feel like they need to kind of keep their powder dry and are not sponsoring tax legislation until the committee gets through the process. I think we're really going to be able to ramp up our co-sponsor efforts when we come to some sort of conclusion on a House bill, but um, I just wanted to make you all aware of that in case you're wondering why some of who we've talked about are key allies on the committee don't officially have their names on the bill. Um, one thing it's important to note here is that we do think it would be grand to have our legislation or key pieces of it incorporated into a final tax bill, but our number one goal remains to protect us against um, uh, indirect or direct harm, and so we're using our legislative strategy as an offensive defense. Um, if there is such a thing, at least it's defensive. Um, and we are um, certainly talking to committee staffers and members about opportunities to include pieces of our legislation um, in a final package. The smaller the final package is, the less likely that we will be included in it as a, um, an add-on measure for SESOP. So as I said, goal one, um, stay unharmed. Goal two would be any opportunity to include our measure um, in, in a tax package if it accommodates outside measures like ours. Um, one thing that the team wants you all to understand is that right now the committees of jurisdiction are wildly in flux. It's that political environmental factor that we talked about. Um, there's a lot of disagreement within the traditional mainstream Republican Party and we're seeing members of Congress um, uh, resign, resign early, um, announce that they're going to retire um, sooner than we expected or announced that they're going to run for um, a governor's office, which is an office that they feel like um, they could probably have more control over their agenda um, and deal less and less with the challenging dynamics of being on Capitol Hill. Um, roughly seven, what is it, seven members of the Ways and Means Republicans are um, already not coming back to Congress next year. Um, one of them, Pat Tiberi, announced last week, and he's been a huge ally for ESCA um, from Ohio. He announced last week that he was not only not going to run again, but that he was going to leave in January, which is, you know, um, 10 months before his term is over. And Tiberi has been um, not only a key Republican, but he was a contender for chairman of the Ways and Means Committee as a whole. He's frustrated. Um, with how hard it is for Republicans to move policy and to work together. Um, the party is really, I think, going through um, an interesting and challenging um, uh, kind of critical juncture right now. And then um, on the Ways and Means Committee as a whole, Democrats largely staying in place, but ESCA's going to have to continue to fill it, you know, to fill that um, pipeline of allies with new um, key contacts. So we have no idea where next years or, or 2019's Ways and Means Committee members are going to be from. So having um, ESCA member companies who cover a broad swath of states is vitally important to us because we're going to have to replenish the coffers 
of friends and allies and champions very, very quickly. And don't forget the staffers who all of you meet with when you come up to Capitol Hill to do your DC visits. Those staffers are gonna cycle in and out too. And there's a lot of cycling right now at this kind of pivot point for the, um, for the Republican Party. In the Senate, um, is it seven or eight members of the Finance Committee Democrat side are up for re-election. A number of those are very, very hotly contested races already. Um, so again, we could see a lot of changeover on the Finance Committee Democrat side um, with the same theme. Key allies who have been supportive of our legislation, who have been longtime friends of ESOPs, and many of them won't be coming back, and a number of them may not be coming back in the next Congress. Some of them are leaving early period just because they can't take it anymore. And what does that mean for us? It just means that this is a technical issue. We have a lot of education to do. And as we're doing a lot of education, we're trying to go backwards with some offices and make sure that we bring new offices up to speed. Um, we're definitely building on um, the relationships that we have. We have been growing influential voices. Um, some of you may have seen that there have been um, op-eds that ESCA has helped shepherd um, our communications efforts have been um, significantly ramped up. So there was an op-ed a few weeks ago by uh, former Senator Sununu of New Hampshire that touted SESOPS as something that works in the tax code, not an accident. There was an item um, by a uh, well-known policy insider, Ike Brannan, said essentially the same thing. Um, these things are not happening accidentally. We're working actively with thought leaders try and cultivate their awareness and to leverage their voices to make them more present so that we can then take their writings and their analysis and bring them back to the people who are in charge. Um, obviously, we're still working on getting out our own messages through our own companies. I know that our Hamilton Place Strategies um, uh, partners have been very actively involved with a number of ESCA companies working on getting pieces placed in, in your local papers as well. Let me remind you of two important things. First of all, a number of us will be in Las Vegas for ESCA's fourth quarter board meeting um, the week of November, is that 7th, the back end of that week. If we haven't seen you in a while and you'd like to reconnect just to um, learn more about what ESCA's up to, um, because you were sad to have missed our September conference, because you want to know what we're going to be talking about in February, reach out to our team here. DeAndre Brennan's probably the best person to connect with. Um, but you can talk to anybody in our in our group or Lori Brackage, um, Monica Farrow, who does membership engagement also, um, and we'll try and set up something so we can uh, visit a little bit there. And then please um, take a look at the online posting for our fantastic February conference. We feel very, very excited about the lineup that is beginning to come together for that. Um, and that is uh, President's Day week in Naples, Florida. I think we've been clear as day, Matt. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for joining. The recording will be sent around here shortly, but uh, thanks for joining us for this webinar. Have a nice day. Have a great afternoon.